Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Tonight, uh, what we wanted to focus on is how to walk with, how to care for the children of divorce in our conversation. So this is a general conversation, as you probably have picked up, about soul care per se, uh, but then thinking particularly how it might apply to uh, the uh, kids who are affected by, uh, by divorcing parents. Uh, because, again, this is going to be an increasing phenomenon that we deal with in walking with folks at the garden. Just a snapshot again, our task in soul care is not counseling. Uh, we want to partner with people who are better uh, are able to do that regularly and for a period of time. Uh, soul care is more about uh, helping persons grow to Christ-likeness. How do we take advantage if you will, of the seasons uh, that people are in, the lives that they're going through. Do we, do we need to talk? Yeah. So it's the divorce recovery already. Here we go. Anyway, uh, yeah. Um, but uh, to, to not to put too fine a point on it, I, 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 in, in the, the soul care piece, the helping persons grow to become more like Christ through whatever seasons they're going through, taking advantage of whatever kind of happens, um, seems to me to be uh, within the framework of like community groups and, and friends who walk with folks and, and, and whatnot, as long as you keep remembering that the goal is not to fix things but to really partner with what the Holy Spirit's doing and discern what he's doing and, and, and how can we come alongside and support that? Um, uh, how do we help them hear the voice of God in the, in the middle of what may feel like some pretty difficult or painful circumstances? And the same thing then is true with, with the children of divorce. I don't think it's fair to say... I, I think it's fair to say that... that um, the spirituality of children um, has has a different uh, component to it than the spirituality of adults. Uh, but if we believe what the Scripture tells us, God is at work in children just as much as He is at work in adults. He He is He is as um, uh, filling children with the Spirit as much as he does adults. The trick is, children are always in developmental flux, right? So our soul care of them, whether youth pastors or people who walk with them at whatever ages, including adult children whose parents, adult parents get divorced, that has an impact. Uh, will vary depending on the stage they're, they're in. So this may not be germane to everybody, but I think it could be, uh, could be helpful. Uh, so any questions or thoughts uh, arising out of our conversation last week that anybody wants to push into a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Right. 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 That, that, thank you. That's really the goal that Pete and I had for doing this was while there are going to be targeted topics, the, the goal of soul care is the same. Right. Let's net, let's not waste our pain. Let's not, uh, uh, you know, let's not fail to take advantage of whatever cards were dealt to grow to Christ likeness. So that's that's good. Good to hear. Thank you. Okay, so digging in. Um, and this is kind of the introductory paragraph there. To, and I just want to read it to get the frame here. To some degree, every child whose parents get divorced is affected by it. The degree and nature of the impact depends on a number of factors. The age of the child at divorce, the gender of the child. Boys and girls handle the divorce of their parents differently. Uh, the uh, personality of the child, 
the birth order of the child. Firstborns handle it differently than secondborns, than thirdborns. Um, the reason for the divorce, is it an affair? Uh, is it um, uh, a catastrophic uh, illness? Often that pushes families apart. Is it financial stress and pressure? Uh, what, what's going on there uh, and how, how do kids respond to that? Who is the custodial parent? Uh, how, how divorce affects kids depends on who they spend the majority of their time with. Uh, and the relationship, what is their relationship with the non-custodial parent? Uh, so, for example, typically uh, still three-quarters of the time, roughly, the primary custodial parent and primary caregiver is mom. Uh, so what is the child's relationship with dad? Uh, and at what ages does that... So there are a number of factors that weave into this one uh, that, that make it challenging. Uh, what is the nature of the relationships between the parents before the divorce, during the divorce, and after the divorce? So parents that make the effort to be kind to one another, even while they're amicably separating, will have a greater likelihood of producing a resilient child than parents who are acrimonious as they head into divorce and, and afterwards. Because the children will pick up, as you probably have figured out, on the acrimony. They'll, they'll start to... Uh, internalize that and take responsibility for it and, 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 and so on. So those, those kinds of factors. So, and then the final piece here is even adult children are impacted by a parent's divorce. And this depends to some degree on how differentiated uh, and individuated they are. Uh, so, so an adult child whose dad or mom has an affair resulting in the divorce will start to vibrate with concern over whether the whole of their childhood was a sham, right? Uh, and a lot of times there's faith issues that attend to that and so on and so forth. So, um, so that's the, the, the framework that, that we're, we're looking at here. Um, in order to kind of set um, the... the uh, uh, what happens in place, I want to give you a kind of a, this is a very generalized sketch of the development uh, of children as they go through ages and, and how that relates to the parents so that when, so that you can start to maybe think through, all right, if a, if a, if a child is, is eight when his parents or her parents get divorced, what, what, ha what, happens when they're eight, what's supposed to be happening, and what does the divorce impact as they, they move into that. I've got some extra sheets here if, um, and, and are on some of the other chairs, so if anybody wants to pick those up, that's great. Thank you. Um, so, any, any questions or comments so far? Make sense? All right, so the first thing, zero to five, primary uh, parent both parents are necessary throughout the process, ideally, uh, but the primary parent is mom between the ages of zero and five. The primary task of parenting between these ages of zero and five is to convey to the child that the world is a safe place, that it's a place of, of refuge, of, uh, of, of comfort to some degree. Um, that safety piece is really important. A lot of the trust uh, issues that develop uh, are framed in this in this period of time. Again, both mom and dad are necessary, if I can use that language. But mom is the primary parent with uh, preschool age kids uh, for the for the most part. Um, and the world again is a, a safe place and and stable, uh, the etc. Uh, between five and ten. Uh, the primary uh, uh, kind of, uh, it, well, it's a shared role. Both mom and dad are, are almost equally involved and somewhat depending on the gender of the children. Uh, but for the most part, both are involved. And the primary task here is to play, 
to learn about adventure, to learn that life is an exciting place, that there will be bumps and bruises along the way, but see zero to five, I'll be fine, I'll recover, everything will be okay, I, nothing's final, everything's, you know, ideally, I'm learning into the world as an adventurous place. Uh, between the ages of 10 and 15, dad is the primary parent. Uh, again, both parents are needed all the way through. But between 10 and 15, dad is the primary parent. And he has the responsibility, if you will, of giving his children, both sons and daughters, their adult selves, calling out, equipping um, uh, their son's masculinity, their daughter's femininity, both son's and daughter's sexuality uh, emerges during this time, and it's dad who validates both of those uh, and, and does so by, by welcoming his sons into the community of men, by uh, honoring the sexuality, emerging sexuality of his daughter without sexualizing her. Uh, so th this uh, is a real critical role. Again, mom is, in, is, is there and, and important, but dad is the primary giver of uh, their adult selves to their children during this stage. Um, and then between the ages of 15 and 20, both parents come back in as equal partners, and the goal is to get them out of the house. So to equip them with the final stages, if you will, of financial stewardship and how do you boil an egg and change the oil and fix a flat tire and open a bank account and manage resources. Ideally, this is kind of what's happening in that, in that stage so that by the time they're 18, 19, 20, they can function without you. The goal, remember, of having children, as we said before, is to get rid of them. So to, to hand them off to their adult selves so that now at 20, 21, 22, you can renegotiate your relationship with your children as adult to adult, even though you will always be dad or mom and they will always be son or daughter. Ideally, the pattern of the relationship and often this is the gift that, that parents give their children is to regard them as adults with equal voice in the system, not just children who are still subservient to the system, if that, if that makes sense. Um, so those are the kinds of things that happen or are supposed to generally happen during those basic five-year frames. I think you probably already know that these overlap rather drastically and they move back and forth, so it's not... A, uh, okay, it, now it's your fifth birthday, let's move on to adventure. Um, it, it, it really is, depending on the personality of the child, uh, their birth order, the firstborns are probably going to be um, uh, push a little bit. They're probably going to start to move into uh, their adult self, um, uh, res, uh, adventure self a little bit earlier and so on and so forth. Um, the youngest will probably play more. Um, if there's three, uh, probably more irresponsible because he's always got somebody or she's always got somebody picking up after them and making sure they're where they are so they don't have to. Uh, often the third child is the lat walks and talks much later than the other one or two did uh, because they don't need to. Everybody interprets things for them and picks them up and carries them, so why do I need to walk? Uh, so that, that's a, uh, 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 an issue there. Um, so what happens if the divorce occurs between the ages of zero and five? Uh, it, that's when then children miss out on the world as a safe place. So they learn right away that things are not as they seem, that chaos can happen, that unsettledness can happen, that, that, uh, there is uh, confusion and um, uh, that, that they're, they're, they might bounce a few times before they land, uh, etc. Uh, and that, of course, now has to renegotiate the rest of the ages, right? So if a, a child has parents who divorce at age three or four or five, um, the playfulness part tends to get truncated 
as well as the healthy emergence into their adult self and sexuality tends to get truncated and so on. So the earlier the divorce, depending on a number of factors like uh, is there a remarriage? How do I get along with stepmom or stepdad? What's the relationship between the divorced parents? Is it amicable? How do it, and we'll talk about some of the ways that that can work out in a, in a minute. Uh, but anyway, that one, uh, if the divorce occurs between zero and five, what gets lost often is the playfulness, is the sense of adventure. So children will move into an adult posture sooner rather than later. They will uh, assume levels of responsibility that uh, maybe aren't necessarily appropriate for eight or nine year olds. I've walked with kids at school here, for example, whose parents have gotten divorced at six or seven when they were six or seven years of age, and they were making breakfast, they were doing the meals, they were washing the table, they were doing the clothes at six, seven, or eight years of age. Um, so their whole playful childhood was completely uh, missed. Uh, any play was official and organized, so it was sports programs and so on and so forth. So the, the natural playfulness of a child never had a chance to flourish because there was always work to do. Um, that one of the things that happens at that age. Uh, if the divorce occurs between 10 and 15, um, it, this is the one where because dad is the primary parent here, it really depends a lot on what his role in the whole divorce scenario is. So if he has an affair, that's different than if mom has an affair. If, if it's financial pressures crisis and he has to take a job in a far off uh, uh, city or if contact is broken between father and, and son or daughter, then the stuff that's supposed to happen there, the emergence of the adult self, the uh, affirmation without sexualizing of sexuality, the uh, celebration of their transition into adulthood often has to get worked on their own. They have to figure out how to do it. Um, and this is often where youth groups can come in and youth pastors and surrogate parents almost and, and aunts and uncles and people can come in and help. But if dad is an absentee parent, that creates the most problems in the whole system. Uh, and it's even more so than if mom is an absentee parent during that period of time. That's damaging, too. But it's, it, it's because dad's the primary sort of frontline parent during those years, uh, his absence, uh, emotional absence primarily, has the most, most impact. Um, and, and again, I'm just speaking in very, very broad generalities. Uh, so I could trot out kids who have, were, whose parents got divorced at any of these stages who exhibit none of the things that I'm saying. So it's not inevitable. Uh, but over the years, you see patterns that emerge that you don't want to ignore. Right. Uh, and then if between the ages of 15 and 20, uh, often this will be the age in which anger uh, 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 it characterizes the child's relationship with parents. Parents, uh, this will be often a place in which they are moved a little bit sooner than they're quite ready into their adult maturity or where they are sucked back into the system that ought to launch them because now they are required to stay at home and be the surrogate parent for their younger siblings or something like that. So there are some factors that, that go. So those are some general um, uh, impacts of divorce on, 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 on kids. Um, obviously, birth order plays, an, plays a factor in this. The oldest, in, if, if the oldest is um, uh, somewhat irresponsible, as a kid growing up, the, the second sibling will start to take on primary responsibility roles. If the firstborn is responsible, then the second one will, will be more or less irresponsible. So whatever the first is, the second tends to be the, the, the opposite, the echo of that. And then the third tends to be more like the first again. 
um, although that eb ebbs and flows a little bit. Uh, so, so who becomes the dad? Who becomes the mom? Who takes care of dad or mom? Those kinds of things. And, of course, gender matters as well. Um, you know, the, the son will become his mother's confidant and caretaker uh, often, or caregiver often. The daughter will become her daddy's defender, protector, um, and will really enjoy, relish the role of, of being his caretaker, so to speak. Uh, because and will often be and both cases will be affirmed for it. In fact, parents will often tell their sons or daughters, you know, you're 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 gonna you're the man of the house now. You're, you've got to you got to step into this. We need somebody to take care of your younger siblings or whatever. Which then they take as a great badge of honor and pride, but which creates enormous pressure because they haven't had any kind of a foundation on which to learn how the hell do I do that I, I don't know right uh, but they'll they they they'll fake it right they'll do what they think they're supposed to do um, so anyway that's that's the general frame any any questions or comments on on that to begin cool all right, so as we go through this, uh, I'm going to be talking about minimizing damage. So this language is phrased as what to say in soul care to parents. Uh, but often the uh, most adult member in the family is the child. So you may have to, if you're doing soul care with the child, empower them to set appropriate boundaries to say to parents uh, this is not a conversation we ought be having if that makes sense some of that will make more sense as we go through but often the parent well let's look at this and it'll 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 make sure uh, I, I think it'll make a little bit more sense so first of all it's important especially if the child is younger between the ages of uh, up to about 10 or 11 or so uh, then they start to move from the uh, concrete thinking to abstract thinking between the ages of 10, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. So the world becomes much, much bigger very, very quickly. But between the ages of 0 and, five, and 10, everything rotates around them. Which means they take responsibility for anything that goes sideways. So if mom and dad are getting a divorce, whose fault is it? Well, it's my fault. Uh, and they will, they will be able to tell you with precision what it was that they did to cause dad to leave. Uh, because it, very concrete, I, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't ha and I've had a, I had a fifth grade kid um, uh, tell me that her dad left because she didn't make her bed. Now, that's patently ridiculous. But that's the last memory she had. Daddy got mad because the bed wasn't made properly. And that afternoon he left. Now, she didn't know that Daddy had been planning to leave for weeks. She made the connection in her head, even though she was past the concrete stage at 12. She made the connection. I was an irresponsible daughter and that's why Dad left. Do you see? And that's even more so the, the younger the children are. So you have to let them know over and over as often and as with much detail as necessary that the divorce is not their fault. Uh, this is especially important when you are legitimately upset with them, with your children, unrelated to the divorce, but which they may be interpreting as being about the divorce. Remember, children aren't very good at nuance. So you, you really have to be very crisp and clear and precise on what's going on there. Their capacity, of course, to understand what you're talking about will depend on age and maturity. So you want to um, help children. And, and, and it's really, really challenging with younger kids 
Uh, it's only as they start to get a little bit older that you can start to do soul care properly with them. But I've had Sunday school teachers with seven or eight year old kids who have had to be their soul caregiver and let those kids know because the prayer request in Sunday school or in children's church or children's ministry is for the for daddy to come back home. He left because he was mad at me. Uh, and the Sunday school teacher ha- has, I believe, a soul care re- re- duty to come back to that seven or eight year old kid and say, whatever the reason daddy left was, it wasn't you. Right? So that, uh, then the second piece is uh, to help parents never use the child as a messenger or go between or the explainer. Uh, tell your dad, tell your mom. Uh, you have to empower the child to say, that's not my job. If you would like to say that to them, you need to tell them that. Now, please notice that puts the child in their view at risk. Because to say no to their custodial parent with whom they have an, probably a natural affinity uh, puts them in the crosshairs, possibly. So how the parent responds to that will be Im- important. Uh, sec- third, uh, don't use the, char- the child then as your therapist, your counselor, your support system, or your friend. Uh, I put friend in quotes there because children are never supposed to be the friends of their parents. They're, until they've, they've differentiated, become their own self, and now we reintegrate in an interdependence. Now we can negotiate what kinds of friends we're going to be including we're probably not going to be close friends. You'll always be my mom and dad, but friendship is not the word that's going to use, be used to describe our relationship. You need to have your own friends, and so do I. Um, but the problem is, of course, kids are highly honored that mom and dad or wants to be their friend. I find this a lot more with, with women who want their daughters to be their friends uh, than men who want their sons to be their friends um, for whatever reason. Um, but that creates tensions in the, in the dynamic of the relationship uh, that is very challenging to negotiate. Um, but especially when the child then is, uh, is, the, is the, um, struggling with parents who have gotten divorced, the child becomes the counselor, right, or the therapist, or they become the third leg of the triangle. So a child is triangled uh, as because the system is vibrating with mom and dad up here. The child now becomes the stabilizing influence of the of the triangle, and that becomes uh, massively challenging because children are not intended to carry that weight, and they have no resource to 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 carry it. So you may have to, like I said, empower the child to say, "Mom, that's not a conversation you and I ought to be having." Uh, I'm not capable or whatever using our adult language, but we talk to children that way. Um, Number four, because each child is different and will process reality differently, you have to work as hard as you can to, quote unquote, get or understand each of your children and honor their individual responses and reactions to the new realities. So firstborns. We'll handle it differently than secondborns, than thirdborns. Boys will handle it differently than girls, depending on age, depending on their relationship with you. Uh, Mom tends to favor the youngest sibling. Dad tends to favor the oldest sibling, which means the middle sibling tends to get left out by both. Uh, But will often then step into the role of uh, the the splainer. He or she will be the... The, the one that keeps every, works really, really hard to keep everybody and everything together uh, fairly, fairly often. Um, often we'll start to exhibit firstborn tendencies uh, when the firstborn child has gotten sideswiped by the divorce. That, does that make sense? Um, so, so what does that mean? Same thing as it always means for every parent with every child. You've got to learn your kids. And parent them in ways that are appropriate to them, uh, which will be in every, you can't be fair. Fairness is uh, impossible if you're parenting. Okay, 
I feel like I'm rattling on. Are you, is everybody doing okay? Yeah, shoot. Right. Yeah. And this can happen, too, by the way, even though there's no divorce. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So, I maybe want to ask maybe sort of a sidebar question, but what's, what's unhealthy codependence versus healthy codependence? There's no such thing as healthy codependence. Okay. Codependence is always enabling behavior. So, in order for, for example, the classic example, in order for an alcoholic to be an alcoholic, he or she needs somebody who enables them to be that. That's the codependent. That's the one who calls in to work and says, oh, I'm sorry, he's got a headache today, he's sick today, right? That enables him to, to persist in his alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever it is. So what you're, what you're trying for is a, a system in which every member is connected by a, a, a magnetic pull, but not an enmeshment. So the goal is that everybody is allowed to be themselves um, and, and, and are still accepted as part of the system. Does that make sense? So... A lot of families that view themselves as close really are enmeshed. And they don't ever find that out until one of the members disagrees with the system. And then you, dis- then you discover that the price you have to pay for this quote-unquote closeness is conformity. So if, 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 if me being myself causes me to get kicked out of the system... And there's all kinds of ways of kicking kids out of the system, right? It's not, not just uh, uh, don't come home for Thanksgiving. Uh, it, it, the child becomes the object, for example, of gossip between the, the rest of the siblings. I've got an old firstborn child right now whose, whose mom didn't like his choice of a wife. And so has turned the rest of his siblings against him. And it's, it's, it's like, wait, in order to be your son, I have to agree with everything you say and think? Now, before that, if you would have asked him, he would have said, we have a very close family. He didn't. He has an enmeshed family, a, a codependent system. Does that make sense? So, so you, a lot of it depends on age and how you, how you walk with people. And where this really shows up problematically is where you move towards marriage. Because you will tend to marry into the system that you left. So if your role has been therapist, you will tend to marry somebody who needs therapy. Right? If your role has been stabilizing caretaker... You will tend to find somebody and be attracted to somebody who needs you to do that for them. Right? And you won't be attracted to somebody who doesn't need you to do that for them because that's what love has always meant to you. So this is why attraction is important, but it's not everything. Because if attraction has been mistrained, you will be attracted to people who will do you harm. They will find each other, and it won't take very long. Yeah. Anybody else? Yep, yep. Ideally, yes. So the whole love languages of Chapman and uh, company uh, 
of you know the various ways that we we communicate and receive love communicated to us tends to arise in this family system that is functional. Yeah. In a dysfunctional family system, communication is almost always manipulative. So even love comes at cost. Exactly. And, and, and again, like the point, Alan, that you're making is that the younger the child is, the less obvious, but the more pernicious and pronounced and long-lived are the symptoms. Because they don't, they don't appear, right? How, how, how does a three-year-old communicate that the world is no longer a safe place right. right so they're thrown into a survivor mode and now that becomes their primary way and the problem with that is that survivors tend to be very successful you know so so everybody thinks oh man you're doing but that's the challenge bingo yep hyper control Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> okay. Um, any other questions on, on any of this so far? Number five is probably an obvious one, but I have to say it. Don't weaponize your child. That is, don't turn your child into a way to get back at the real target of your anger or frustration. Uh, where, where parents turn one of their children against the, the, the parent uh, or, or uh, work, work that side of it. Uh, number six, don't use them as undercover agents. Uh, you have to avoid the third degree, especially the, the grilling that occurs after a weekend, weekend with the other parent and especially his or who love interest or whatever it is, right? Where you want to get all of the juice, all of the all of the juicy details of what mom and dad, mom or dad are doing on the other side of this, and how they're negotiating things. Um, rarely are divorces settled equitably financially. So almost inevitably, one parent or the other will have greater levels of, of for lack of a better term, prosperity. Uh, and so that inequity creates tensions and often then the, the, non, the, the non-prosperous parent, whoever that is, will tend to supplement by denigrating whatever success the, the visiting parent has or if he or she is happy in their relationships or, well, yeah, but... So this whole piece goes, goes sideways pretty quickly, and kids obviously pick up on that. And then number seven, which seems obvious, but don't force them to take a side. Uh, really challenging because you, especially if you're looking at your child as a counselor or a therapist, you want them to sympathize and empathize with you. You want them to understand your perspective and point of view. Uh, unfortunately, we often equate understanding with agreement. If you understand me, you agree with me. No, I understand you, and I still think you're wrong. That's a possible outcome, right? So those are some of the things that... Now, again, these are words that I would speak to and walk with parents going through this, but kids may often have to be empowered... To, to create these boundaries for their own self-protection and the emergence of the health of their soul in, in, in any of this. Does that make sense? Okay, any, more, any other questions on, on, on any of this stuff before we start to look at the soul care pieces particularly? Everybody doing okay? All right, so. Can I ask a question? Go ahead. Or going through a divorce, they're, they're doing one of these children. Um, and I 
Yeah. I'm just going to go out of the and say, if they're doing these, one of these, well, obviously not, or they're strongly doing it, they're probably pretty resistant to what's going on in their situation. Because they're the adult, they're not acting like one. They're not trying to hate on it, but they're the yeah. ones very hurt. Yep. And they, yep. they're lashing out that hurt through their children. Right. So, how have you found your soul care of people like that? Uh, remember, the goal in soul care is uh, to help persons become more fully themselves. So what's often you're seeing there is the insecurity or the fear that that bubbles up in that kind of kind of responsive behavior. Right. So. Truth never makes a way for itself. Love makes a way for truth, but truth does not make a way for itself. So if I'm walking with somebody in there, I want them, first of all, to know that I love them and enough that they will be able, with me asking permission, to speak into this. Uh, if I'm a, in a pastoral role, because I've had, found myself in this position sometimes, I will often act as the advocate of the child with the child's permission. So I had one of my kids in my youth group a few years ago when I was still a youth pastor more than a few years ago. Uh, but anyway, when I was youth pastor, whose parents were going through divorce, and um, he was, he was uh, uh, needing somebody to be his advocate. And so I asked permission, and he gave me permission. So then I went and spoke to his mom. Uh, and um, it didn't turn out so good right at the beginning, but we finally were able to get some progress later on because she knew I, I cared about her son. I, I cared about her as a person. Her dad, her, his dad uh, had, had, had left and she was channeling a lot of her anger at his dad, uh, at him. So the chores, the responsibilities, um, dad had had an affair. Uh, so... Here's this teenage kid who's starting to move into dating relationships, and mom is just rigid in her insistence on certain kinds of. I mean, it was just, it was pretty toxic. Yeah. Um, it, that is really, really challenging. Um, and, and the problem is, is the parent who comes back very often is completely clueless as to the fact that to that child, he is a complete stranger. Uh, and so part of what you have to do if you're given permission uh, is empower the child to let the parent know that, that simply because even it's eight or nine or ten, you may have to give script if they can understand what they're saying to to communicate their feelings uh, that that, uh, you know, I know that legally you're my mom or my dad. Biologically, you're my mom or my dad. But realistically, you you are the kind of person against whom I have been warned my whole life. Don't go with strangers. You're a stranger to me. And simply the fact that you are around for the first two or three years of my life doesn't mean you're not. And the assertion of rights, parental rights, often becomes a weapon. Uh, so the child becomes uh, a, a marker of one-upsmanship in the whole system. It's, it's pretty toxic. Yeah. With, often with kids like that, though, the primary responsibility of a soul caregiver is to walk with them and support them through the crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so soul care uh, with them. And again, like we've said, some of this is going to be related to the age of the child at which the divorce occurs. Issues are going to ebb and flow with time and attention. Uh, and this is a kind of a long-term walking. Uh, it's not a let's have three conversations, one and done. This is probably in all likelihood going to be, especially as they, the younger they are, the more they will have missed of the parenting role as they got older, right? Uh, and obviously you can make parallels with parents, uh, with kids whose parents have died or who are on long-term. I'm walking with somebody right now whose dad, for all intents and purposes, wasn't around because he was in the military. And so he was in various places. He would be gone for months at a time, come home for three or four or five weeks or months, and then be shipped off somewhere else. And so this constant push-pull was, uh, has created some fairly substantial challenges because uh, the adjustment period coming back uh, is challenging. So a lot of these things uh, come, come in this. So identity becomes a primary place. Um, even though it is still... Um, not uncommon for kids to have schoolmates whose parents are divorced. When your parents are divorced, there's a social stigma attached to identifying yourself, to owning up to the fact that your mom and dad are split up or whatever, even though the majority of your friends, because statistically that's probably going to be the case, you take the average class of 35th graders and probably a good half are living with somebody other than both of their parents right now. Um, in, in some groups, it goes as high as uh, three quarters. So, but even so, when you're the kid and it's your parents, you still feel that, that, that identity issue. So the, the piece here, identity's got to be anchored in Christ. We've got to help people come to know who they are in Him. This is a relentless theme that will show up in everything that we do in soul care uh, because of, it's of the importance of it, uh, but primarily push back against that social stigma. Um, then uh, the necessity of, of continued walking in forgiveness. Um, remember, we've talked a little bit about forgiveness before in other contexts, but the whole structure of forgiveness is not about controlling the outcomes or the behaviors of the other person. It's about releasing me from their control of me. So I'm not going to put them in charge of my emotional well-being. I'm going to release them through forgiveness. We're going to give them over. But you see this a lot um, when parents have, when children have to forgive their parents for getting a divorce in the first place. There's often anger attached to that or frustration attached to that. And, and how do I renegotiate relationship with a parent? Uh, and while, so while forgiveness might not technically be the right word, it's still the best way to renegotiate relationship, to go through those five state, four stages of forgiveness. Remember the uh, feeling the pain, feeling the emotion that comes from the pain, anger, hate, whatever it is then working through the structures of release, releasing the person who hurt me from the pain they caused me, releasing them to Jesus so that he can deal with them and whatever judgment he seems, sees fit, and then releasing myself from the right to make them pay. And then the fourth one is renegotiation of relationships, which is really, really challenging with kids uh, because they, they just want to get things often back. And often the person who has hurt them wants to get things back to normal as a justification for the decisions they've made. But to do that for a kid often puts them back in harm's way. You know, uh, and that becomes a, a, a real, real challenge. Uh, so, but forgiveness is still strategy. Uh, then we have to walk with them through the sense of responsibility or blame. Uh, so this is partly what I was talking about before. But younger children particularly see themselves as the center and take responsibility for the divorce, even though it's clearly not their fault. 
they they view themselves as the as the center and therefore so soul care is going to have to push back against that misunderstanding uh, and and that uh, that lie that they are somehow responsible now for their families falling apart or that they feel responsible for their uh, parent depending on the age that they are that that uh, and notice a lot of times when when you have a a, a a son or a daughter who's looking after mom or dad if they start to mom or dad start to date uh, and consider relationships with the step family because we haven't really even talked about blended families here you can talk about that if you want to but if mom and dad start to date then this kid feels divorced again because he had stepped in or she had stepped into the role and now you don't need me anymore so I wait a minute how I thought I was, I, what, who's, and identities get shifted again. So, anyway, uh, anger is 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 big. Uh, we're going to talk. I'm going to talk a little bit about that on Sunday. But in this particular case, anger is, um, is the bitterness or the resentment or the frustration that arises, especially in older children who feel that their entire childhood was a sham, that they've been duped, that, that nothing was what they thought it was uh, when, when they were growing up. And, and the, the sense that I've been lied to, I've been deceived my whole life, and especially if, if there's an affair, uh, that really damages kids' sense of their parents' morality. Uh, and, you know, mom and dad now lose the right to speak to mom or dad, whoever, what lose the right to speak to them about sexual responsibility, for example. Sorry. You've lost the moral high ground here, if ever you had it. Uh, so so that piece kicks in. And by the way, that is still true if the if the child is 30 and mom and dad get a divorce, they they still Wait a minute. What? What? Because remember the third blip in the divorce statistics, or the the second largest uh, number was at 20 to 25 years of age. After kids have gone away to college, now 25 year old dealing with a newly divorced mom or dad, um, it is not uncommon for that to coincide with midlife crisis. So the new husband or wife of the parent is only a decade older than they are and that <laughs> you know kids trying to figure out which way's up in the middle in the middle of all of that and anger is the primary emotion when those numerous boundaries have been violated all right um Let's, uh, I'm going to keep talking through here, but I've got, it's about five after eight. Why don't we take a short break? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.